0: Well, praise the Lord. How many know God's still in control? How many were here last week? How many things were up in the air last week? You watch the video? How many liked the video? Now, every time I watch a video like that, I realize I'm not that demonstrative, I guess, would be the word. And so I always get an uh, inferiority complex when I hear guys like that. And uh, so now you've got to be followed up with that with me. But I get a phone call at convention Sunday morning that Gil can't make it. How I many you of know that God knew that before Sunday morning? And actually the video we had was one I had listened to a couple days before just because I was listening to it. And as soon as Gil told me he couldn't be here, I figured, okay, I think that's something the church needs to hear. So I believe God wants us to hear that. How many of you were challenged by that? How many of you know you're in a spiritual battle? It's not against, you know, us and them. It's against good and evil. And there is evil in the world. And it kind of ties in with our study on Revelation. Oh, which, by the way, Gil's still got his Daniel sermon coming. It's coming in a couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that. We have been studying the book of Revelation. We've been studying the churches in Revelation. And the churches we mentioned before are examples of Christians and churches in every age. There's always going to be a church in Ephesus in every age. There's going to be a church of Philadelphia in every age. And it also could apply to us individually, as opposed to a church corporate. And the churches, Revelations one, two, and three are addressed to the church age, to us. After Revelation three, it's talking about what's gonna happen when the church is not here. All that bad stuff that's gonna happen is when the Christians are gone, which God's trying to get their attention, trying, trying to Get them ready for the rapture. Because once the rapture happens, everything's off the table. Everything as, quote, all hell will break loose on earth at that time. And God wants the churches to be ready. We need to pay attention. We kind of ended with uh, wake up a couple weeks ago. We don't want to end up on the wrong side of eternity. We want to pay attention to what God's telling us here. We want to pay attention to the times it's happening, but mostly to our walk with Christ. You know, every time I see the news, you know, we talk about the mark of the beast. Christians aren't gonna be here for that. And you wonder, how is it possible that people are gonna get coerced into getting this tattoo or whatever it is on their body? What's gonna make that happen? Well, I think we're seeing a little bit of that now with the vaccine. Now, I'm not pro-anti, I'm just saying what's happening now is the small indication of what is going to happen at that moment. The things that we thought, oh, that's impossible to happen, it's, it's already happening on a small degree. We were, when the kids were at the house before we came over, and at that age, you know, they're just so darn cute, right? And you wonder, And we've we've told people, look, if you're not going to get saved now, don't take the mark. And most people say, "Ah, I'm not going to take the mark. I'm not going to take the mark. Well, when you look at your two-year-old who is starving because you can't get food and you can't get water and they're crying because their bellies are empty, you are going to take the mark because it's not you, it's your kids. All this is in preparation so we're not even there to have the choice to make. We want to be ready now. When the rapture happens, we want to be ready. We don't want to be hurrying to think we're going to make it and not make it. And you think, well, I can weather the tribulation. I can be martyred. Well, maybe you can. But I'm not sure if you're going to let your kids do it. It's one thing to suffer yourself. And parents, we do that. But it's another thing to see your kids going through it knowing that you might be able to change that. So when we study these churches, we want to make sure that we're on the right side, that we're ready. We're going to finish up this week in the second part of what we started two weeks ago or so on the letter to the church in Sardis. A couple of reminders about those. Sardis was a wealthy city. It was a major military city. It was well fortified and only defeated twice in its history. And both of those defeats were from sneak attacks from unprotected areas. It wasn't a full frontal assault. It was something that they weren't guarding at that particular time. That's how the enemy came in and beat them. And I mentioned then that we have to be under observation and be careful of the areas in our life that are unprotected. What are the the areas in your life that you have struggles with and everyone's different I would venture to say that no one here is going to commit armed robbery or murder but do we gossip do we lie do we do things that we think other people can't see but we know that Jesus sees there are things in this world that we can do that nobody knows about and we can continue to do them and no one knows about except God. I, I saw a coffee mug an advertisement for a coffee mug. It had Jesus peering around the corner and it says, I saw that. <laughs> I might have to get that. But... The point is, there's nothing that you do that's in secret that God, the Bible says, everything we do will be revealed. So the things we're doing in secret, we think nobody knows about, God already knows. So we want to be careful that we don't get attacked in the areas that we think are unguarded. So this church was a large church, had a great reputation at one time of being a place where God displayed His power. And now what happened with the church is years have gone by and they're living on their past reputation. They're living on what happened 10, 20, 30, whatever, however many years ago. And they weren't doing much now to display God's power. It was, I remember when. I remember when. I think you mentioned it Friday night. Can't live. You can't live on what God did yesterday. God did it great yesterday. The testimony encourages us to go on, but you can't stay there. Paul said, because forgetting what's behind, I press on. In other words, you forget. Good, bad, ugly. You forget it. And you move on. If it was great, awesome. But it's not right now. Let's move on. So, and it reminds me of something that Paul said to Timothy in the last days. He says, 2 Timothy 3, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of God, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think that's what's happening today. But verse 5 says, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. These are people that think they're religious. But they have, God's not in their life. And the Bible ends that sentence by saying, have nothing to do with them. He even told them to wake up and rekindle the embers that were still in their life, the church in Sardis. And if they didn't, the little sparks that they had would eventually disappear. How many of you like to build fires outside? Or actually had a fire furnace or you know, like a, a coal furnace or a wood furnace. You have to keep stoking that, right? you got to keep playing with it to keep it going. If you don't, what happens to it? It goes out. And you got to keep adding to it and stoking it and playing with it. And Paul's saying, what you have, those little embers, if you don't stoke them, it's going to go out. And you're not going to have a relationship with Christ anymore. We left off at the last part of verse 3. It says, remember the theme that we had for all these messages has been the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's what the Bible says. And we as believers have to understand the times that we live in and what we as believers need to do in these times. We watch the news. I can't watch the news anymore. What's going on in the world, we have to understand these might be the last, I mean, really might be the last days. Now the Bible says that when everything's calm and you least expect it is when Christ is gonna come back. So I think what's happening now is eventually gonna die down, it's gonna get calm, people are gonna go back to normal and that's when Christ is gonna come back. When everyone's going back, the Bible says some will be giving in marriage and some will be doing, everything is gonna be as normal, that's when Christ is gonna return, when we least expect it. We're getting the view now. We don't want to let it go out. We have to re- constantly remind ourselves it could be any time. And even after all this stuff dies down and it will die down eventually, that's when we have to be really re- ready for the return. Jesus is addressing these seven churches in order to correct them and have them ready for his return. Some of these churches were, they were good. They only needed a slight correction. Others needed encouragement to keep on keeping on because they were being persecuted. Others were in, in danger of not being ready at all. In fact, they were close to being a dead church. One of, notice we changed the format a little bit. Let's change it up a little bit. The, at youth convention, we'll talk about this next week, the, the tagline that they kept repeating at youth convention was, a quiet church is a dead church. Now you can be alive and still be dead in Christ but the difference is as Christians we walk in we expect God to show up we believe that God can show up we hear about God showing up and we're excited to be in God's house. How many of you like watching sports events? Not anymore I know right with all the stuff going on. But in the days when all that stuff wasn't going on you've watched sporting events you like to go to football games and you'd root for them. Dover had their uh, football game, Saturday night, packed place, people screaming and shouting because they are excited about what's going to happen on the field. We should be excited for what God is going to do. What God's already done, we should be excited about what God's going to do and we should be able to express that. And I, hey, I know some people are more demonstrative than others, obviously. But you walk in, you want to have an attitude of, man, I'm excited for what God's going to do. What, what, what great thing is God going to do today? We've always used the expression come expecting. We expect God to do something. If we don't expect God to do something then why are we here? We expect Him to be here. But God in His infinite mercy was not abandoning these churches. He was writing them to get them ready. And He's writing us to make sure that we examine ourselves to see if we need the same encouragement or, or kick in the pants to get ready. Because all these Corrections and rebukes—they're all done with the purpose of bringing us closer to God. As a parent, when you correct your child, you do it not because you like doing it; you do it because you want them to learn, you want them to grow, you want them to mature, and you keep you keep them safe by allowing them or not allowing them to do things. Um, Sam's mom, Jesse, was downstairs and Sam said to his mom, you're not my friend anymore. Jesse said, that's right. I'm not your friend. I'm your mom. I know you can't be friends with your kids. You're their parents. And there's going to be times when your kids don't like you because of what you do or don't do with them. Things that you don't allow them to do. And you may be the meanest person on the face of the earth and they may not like you and they may hate you. But what are you doing? You're doing all of this to make them better adults, to protect them from what may happen to them. You know that if they do this, bad things are going to happen. They don't know that yet. So when you prohibit them from doing it, you're guarding them and you're protecting them and you want them to see and make good choices. When God is correcting and rebuking and challenging us, the same thing applies. He's not doing it to kill your fun. He's doing it to protect you and grow you and make you a better adult, a better Christian. All his corrections and rebukes are always meant to bring you closer to him, not meant to push you away. So we left off with verse 2 a couple of weeks ago, and we, in unfamiliar fashion for me, I said, wake up. My wife said it was the best part of the sermon. (laughs) When I clapped and made a lot of noise. It says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Embers are going out. The church is really waning. It's, it's close to being a dead church. The spirit man is alive in the church, but it's, he's on life support. He's saying that to this church, I know you have, still have some that are living in your church. You have some in your church that the Holy Spirit is working through but there's not many. And that, even that little ember is about to go out. His influence in your church is almost gone. And he's telling the church, you need to start building it back up again. And that fire's about to go out, you've got to stoke it really hard and put some wood on it and get it going, blow on it. He's telling the church, you need to do the same thing. If we want to be ready, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Are we still operating in the Spirit as a, in your life or do you feel the Spirit's power waning in you? It um, doesn't mean we walk around on clouds. It just means do you feel that what you're doing is in tune with what God wants you to do? Or do you find yourself doing things you know you shouldn't be doing but aren't really convicted about as much as you used to be? Does the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit still have conviction power over you? Or not? You no longer feel bad about doing something. You feel okay about slipping up and messing up and sinning you feel okay with that the Bible says if that's happening then the Holy Spirit his influence in your life is not there and if the Holy Spirit's not there that means you're not a Christian and that means you're not going to make the rapture so he's telling them how how he asked them how do you build it up and he says that what they're doing for God quote is not complete and what does that mean it partly means that they were going through the motions in their services And they're not relying on the Holy Spirit to control the service. There's churches all over the world having church today. Going through the motions. But the Holy Spirit is not in the church. They're doing it as a a club or a rotary meeting. It's not directed by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't mean that everything we do is, you know, weird and ooey and all that kind of stuff. When I first became, when I first went to an Assembly of God church, coming from a Catholic background, really a weird thing for me. But even from then to this day, I've not seen anybody swinging from the chandeliers or anybody rolling down the aisles, which is how they used to refer to us, right? It means that the Holy Spirit is ministering to the people that are here. When we pray up front before service, we pray... That the holy spirit is in control now we have an agenda we know what we're going to do but we want the holy spirit to have veto power over that if god wants to do something that we don't think about beforehand we want to be open to god doing that the example that prayer up there wasn't on the schedule but we felt god was having us do it because people needed it we want the holy spirit knows what's going on in each of your lives And we want the Holy Spirit to reveal that in church so they can be ministered to. You can receive what God has for you. We mentioned on on Wednesday night that a testimony is what God does when you're in a test. It's not listening to sermons. You don't get a testimony from listening to me. You get a testimony from dealing with something in your life that is a test for you that God helps you through. And when you're through it, that's the testimony that God helped you through it. And that's exactly what we want the Holy Spirit to do here. Help us through the service so that when we leave, we'll know it wasn't, hey, it was a great sermon. It was, hey, man, God ministered to me. God did something in my life I needed today. And it may be something we say. It may be something we pray. It may be something that someone else says to you while you're here. This church was doing things, quote, for God, but the things they were doing were not directed or inspired by God. You can be in a church service, you can be anywhere, doing things that you think God's directing you to do, but God has no part of doing it. Again, there's a lot of churches going around having meetings and doing things that God has no, no place in what they're doing. And John's saying, or Jesus saying through John, you need to let the Holy Spirit control what you're doing. And the famous quote that continues to I don't know if it worries me. It makes me stand up. The quote is this. If the Holy Spirit left your church, would you know it? Wow. Because backsliding like this church was doing doesn't happen in a day. It happens over time. You don't become a hardened criminal one day. It works over time. If we want God to operate in the miraculous, what do we need? We need to be revived. Right? This church needs to be revived. Not, I mean, well, we all could stand to be revived, but this church, Sardis, needed to be revived. And John tells him how to do that in verse 3. He says, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. What they received was the gospel. They received the apostolic tradition of the gospel that was preached to them by Paul. And at that moment, they received the Holy Spirit. When you were saved, when you came to know Christ, whenever that was, you received the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, you were excited about this change. Man, it was totally radical for me. You were on fire for God. How many remember that time? Now, if, it, if you don't remember it, that's an issue. <laughs> And two, if you're not there still, that's also an issue. We need to be excited about what God's doing. When they heard about the teachings of the apostles and the prophets who brought the gospel to them, they heard about the love of God and how God forgave them of their sins, and guess what? They were excited. Man, their life had transformed. Just like our lives, if we get saved later on in life, you knew what you were, and man, God saved you anyways. And now your whole outlook on life changes. Like a light bulb goes off in your head and like, I get it. I get what they're talking about. God transforms you. And for them, that meant something. And it should mean something for each one of us. And now their job is to remember what it was they got. What happened 10, 20, 30 years ago? What were you doing then? Start doing it again. What they were doing is they weren't obeying what they were taught. They asked for forgiveness of sins. They were a Christian. And that's about as far as it went. They weren't learning and they weren't growing. They weren't maturing. And if they weren't growing and maturing, they were going backwards. They were no longer allowing the Holy Spirit to operate in their lives. What happens in churches, I think, when they go backwards is it becomes so mechanical to them that they don't let the Holy Spirit work. I'll give you an example in, in business. When you start a business, you're, if you start it, you're the guy, you're the only person, and you're doing all the work, and you're doing everything to please the customers, and every, everything's going great, and you start, you start expanding, and then you've got to start hiring people to work with you, and the more you expand, the more you hire people, until you get to the point where you now, you know, we've got so many employees, we need to have a manual, we need to have a policy and procedure thing. and then, then you got to follow all these rules, and now you become so bogged down in following the rules, you're no longer doing the stuff that created your business to begin with. And that's the way churches sometimes, you're so excited about what God's doing and God saved me. Uh, well, now we've got to start worrying about how the services run and the music, and we've got to get everything lined up, and we, now we have to do it so perfectly, we have to do it so according to the schedule, because now we're just, there's so many people we want to make sure it's right, what's done perfectly, And we do it according to our own knowledge and not according to what the Holy Spirit tells us. Because now we become good at being a manager. Write the schedule, do the schedule, do it the same way. Which is another reason we're trying to change it up a little bit because we don't want to get stale, if you know what I mean. It won't be different. If you come in every week and it's the same thing every single week, it becomes not, not exciting anymore. We want the Holy Spirit to work, and we want, we want to be excited for what He's going to do, and so we change things up so it's not the same. I, now, I do most of the grocery shopping in the house, and every once in a while, giant rearranges their shelves. I hate when they do that, because I know where everything is, and then once I don't know where everything is, i got to find it again. You know why they do that? So you pass something that you wouldn't normally buy, and you buy it. And if you go in the department stores, they have these things in the middle of the aisles. They call them speed tables or impulse tables. Why? You're not there to buy it, but if it's right in your path, chances are you're going to buy it. But if you get so familiar with how a store is, you never do anything different. You walk in, you get what you need, and nothing else, and you walk out. And it's the same thing every week, every week, every week. If you walk into a church, and it's the same thing every week, every week, every week. You don't receive something that God may have if we change things up. Maybe our hearts are open to what God wants to do. Notice at the order of the words. He says, obey it, then repent, which is kind of weird. That means you start doing it before you feel like it. Actions first, then God works on the heart. If you wait till you feel like doing something, you're never going to do it. Sometimes God says, start doing it, even if you don't feel like it, just do it. And what's going to happen is, over time, your heart is going to change about that. I've shared this testimony before that when I got saved, I was a big drinker and a bad mouth. God took the language away right away. Did not take the desire to drink away. And so I had to work on that. I had to stop drinking before I felt like stopping drinking. I knew I shouldn't do it. I really wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. Nope, I'm not going to do it. I obeyed first. Then... The hard attitude came later that I no longer want to do it. But I, if I waited until I stopped wanting to do it, I would never stop wanting to do it. Don't wait until you feel like you're ready. Just do it first. Do what the Word tells you to do. Don't worry about your feelings, they're going to catch up at some point. What do they have to do? Restore the teachings of the gospel. Restore the truth of the word. Adhere to what the Bible says. How many churches this morning are preaching the Bible? Every church, that's the only thing they should preach. When they start preaching other things, they've left what the Bible says you need to do. Because this is the only thing that has truth for us. Verse 3 goes on and says, but if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, this isn't about the rapture. This is about getting spanked. That God's going to bring judgment on them. When I was a kid, my brother and I would always get in trouble. And my mother, she wasn't really, was no authoritarian. We would laugh when she tried to whoop us. But she would tell us, wait till your dad gets home. And that was the fear of God. Because we knew when, especially if we dissed my mom, it was going to be that much worse for us. So we had to wait until he got home. And you know what we did during that time of waiting? We shaped up. We tried to really behave. We tried to do everything right so when my dad actually got home, my mother would have forgotten about it and not told him. However, if we didn't and we kept messing up, it was only going to get worse when he got home. God's saying, wait till your dad gets home. You have some time before I come down and inflict judgment on you for your sin. Use that time to get right. So by the time I feel like coming down to inflict judgment on you, you will have made everything right by that moment. And I'm not going to come. Because you don't know when I'm going to come. The thief term, the word thief represents the times that they were defeated by the silent attack from the unprotected areas. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and defeat you just like you were defeated for those two sneak attacks that happened to you. That's how I'm going to come. When you're least ready for it, when you're least prepared for it. When you least expect it, and you're not prepared for it, and you think everything's going well, that's when the hammer's going to fall remember I was in the dining room with my mom, and we were, I forget what we were doing. And she was yelling at me to do something, and I, I wasn't doing it, and I was laughing at her. The next thing I know, in the back of my head, man, whap, from my dad. I didn't know he was there. I thought things were okay. And all of a sudden, whooping. Why? Because I wasn't expecting it. I was mouthing off. Had I known he was there, probably wouldn't have done it. God's saying, when you least expect it, I am going to whap you in the back of your head. Now, it sounds like Matthew 25, which you shared Friday night. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of tens, 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish took no oil for the lamps. But the other five, who were wise enough, took along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all laid down and slept. It's okay to rest, but rest in anticipation of what's coming. At midnight, they were all aroused by the the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and welcome him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. So they had oil. Now, in this illustration, oil represents the Holy Spirit. The Bible says when, when you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Romans, if you have not the Spirit, then you're not a Christian. Okay, So you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit. All these ten had the Holy Spirit because it says their lamps were going out. So they had oil, but now they don't have enough going out. says so we don't have enough oil for uh please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. They weren't ready. And they're they're not ready for the bridegroom. The bridegroom is is Christ. That's the analogy of the story. He's coming back for those who are ready, who have the Holy Spirit influencing their life. The five foolish ones no longer had the influence. They were losing the influence of the Holy Spirit in their life. The five who had extra oil, they were living according to the Spirit. They were adhering to what what God's Word says. So they asked us, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough oil for you. Go to a store and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, sir, open the door for us. But he called back, I don't know you. The last verse. Just like Revelation, he says, stay awake. Be prepared because you don't know the day and the hour of my return. The rapture, as you've heard many times, is a silent event. And that means nothing is going to happen to indicate when the rapture is going to happen. Now we look at all the events around us and those are all things that are going to happen before the end times. But we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. It could happen any instant. Nothing is going to happen to indicate to us, ooh, the rapture is coming tomorrow. It's just going to happen. Sardis, this church in Sardis, did not know when God's judgment was coming. And we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. So what do we do? We need to wake up. We need to be ready. Verse 4 says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who who have not soiled their clothes. God always has a remnant. Man, this is tying in, right? From Friday night. God puts things together. There will always be a small minority in any group that follow the truth. Now, this is a big church, right? It's probably a big church. And he's saying, out of all those people in that big church, there's a few of you that haven't fallen away. Now, why would, why would they stay? I, we're, every church is different on how they maintain their membership roles we, we review ours every year and we remove folks who have not been here for a while they're, they want to come back they're welcome to come back but they're not a, technically a voting member there are other churches that you sign up once and you are a, a member for life and their roll sheets are thousands of people even though they don't come they're on their roll sheets in the Bible, to wear soiled or uh, worn-out garments meant being defiled. And in pagan rituals, it was forbidden to approach their gods with dirty clothes. Soiled always means to be purified by this, from the sinful actions of the world by mingling pagan and holy things together. In other words, you, get, you try to do something with God, but you bring in some of the sinful things into it. You can't do it. You've got to get rid of all the sinful things. James one twenty one says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. James 1.27, Religion that our, God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one from being polluted by the world. The world wants to just jump its junk on you. Our job is to make sure we're clean, always of that. The Bible says we're to live in the world but not be of the world. We have, to, we have to live. We have to do the things in the world. We just can't let the world influence how we live. Jude 23 says, Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We have to constantly watch our lives to make sure that we're not being influenced by the world. Now, we live in the world, and we operate in the world, and we do things but we can't let their system infiltrate what we, how we live. I was talking to someone the other day that they're being influenced by what they see on social media. Which is why I had to stay off social media, because I get influenced too, in a negative way, with, with the news. I said, well, stop, stop doing it. Stop reading. Facebook, Twitter, with all those things. Stop. Get off of there. Because nothing but junk on there, mostly, anyways. And if it's bothering you and if it's making you do things you normally wouldn't do, get off of it. Which is why I don't watch the news. We have to constantly be sure that we're not being affected by the things that are going on in the world. We can know them. The Bible says, know the times, understand the times, but don't be influenced by them. Don't change who we are to make us more acceptable to the world. I was talking to the kids today. And teens, and they, they said, I said, you guys need to be active witnesses in your classrooms. And both of them were like, oh no, man, I get in trouble for that. I said, you know what? You get in trouble for that, I'll come to bat for you. If you get in trouble for talking about Christ, I'll come to your defense as much as I can. And I said, and God will honor that. Don't be afraid of being a Christian. Don't, I said, don't beat them on the head with it. Don't, you know... Stand up in your classroom and start preaching to them. Just live it in front of them and talk to them. The Bible says let your conversation be seasoned with salt. You know, sprinkle a little bit of the gospel in as you talk. Don't overwhelm them, but allow them to hear the truth. And our job is to live that truth and not be affected by what happens around us. And don't let what happens around us affect who we are as Christians. Don't go along to get along. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We have to be sure that we're not accepting the world standards for what is right, regardless of how good they sound. The Bible says, don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. There are always arguments to come against what God says in His Word. And some of them may sound logical, good. When we talk about, we talk about abortion, and we know we're against it, we love the moms. We love them. We encourage them. If they have had one, we want to love them. But we stand against them. What are the cases that you hear when we say we should not have abortion? What do, what do they say? What about rape and, and incest? Right? Now, to the world, that sounds like a... Oh, that's a good argument. And the truth is, very few happen because of that. And the difference is, It sounds okay, okay. However, the baby didn't commit the crime. You don't kill the baby because the parent did something stupid or sinful. That's where the world standards for right is different than a Christian standard for right. Just because it sounds good and it sounds logical It doesn't negate what God says about it. We have to watch that we're not influenced by that. Verse 4 says, They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. To walk with the Lord means you have a relationship with him. Not that you just come to church, but you have a one-on-one relationship with God. Now, church is part of that. You grow because you come to church, but just coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Coming to this church doesn't make you a Christian. You come here because you are one or you want to be one and you want to learn about it. But the church itself, the building does not save you. And that relationship should manifest in a desire to be around other people who are Christians. Dressed in white always is a symbol for a life of righteousness and purity. What are most bridal guns now? White, right? For the same symbol. Revelation 7.9 says this, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. If you walk with God, if you walk with God, you will be by default, you will be righteous, and you will have Jesus' righteousness, not your own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. So when we sin, and we all sin, we all blow it, and we ask for forgiveness. We stand before God because Christ made us righteous. When God looks at us, he actually sees Jesus in front of us because Jesus is our righteousness. How were they to be worthy? And the truth is, they aren't worthy. No one's worthy. They obtain their worthiness from their trust in the Lord. If they had trusted in Jesus and continue to trust in him, that makes them worthy. Not that their actions make them worthy. They trust And what Jesus did, that makes them worthy. You talk to a lot of uh, kids who are in foster care and they finally get adopted by a family and the kids may feel like they're not worthy of being in the family. It's not what they've done that makes them worthy. It's what the parents have done to adopt them in. They're worthy of themselves. And the parents give them that love and affection. We're not worthy in and of ourselves we're worthy because God made us worthy. He chose us. The Bible says he chose you, you didn't choose him. Which still amazes me. That's what makes you worthy. And he's just telling, these were just plain folks, they weren't persecuted that we know of, they weren't martyred, they weren't even suffering. You can still be, pain, you can still be faithful without any persecution, martyr, martyrdom, and suffering. Sometimes we feel like the only ones who are faithful are the ones who are going through a hard time. It's not. You can be blessed beyond belief and still love God and still have a relationship with Him. They were everyday believers attending a church that was out in left field. But they stayed as a remnant in spite of that. I was, when I was back home, there was a lady I knew who was Catholic and she went to a Catholic church but she was born again. She, we talked and she was born again. And I asked her, coming from Catholic, I said, why do you stay? Why do you, you know, You know the differences we have? Why do you stay? She says, because that's my mission field. I want to reach the people in that church. I believe in Christ, and I believe that they need the same Savior that I need. So I'm going to stay and try to change the people that are there. It's possible for a small remnant to change a big group if we pray and trust God for that. It's not easy to do, stay in a church for years and not truly believe what they say. Now, more often than not, you'll wind up leaving because it's very difficult to change an organization. You can change, you can share with people, but it's very difficult to change an organization. Verse 5 says, He whoever comes will like them. And we stop there. For someone to overcome, they have to be like those in the church who have not been overcome by the evils in the town and the evils that are in this church. When he's talking to the whole church, he says, in other words, look. The remnant's done it. They've stayed faithful. They were able to stay strong in the Lord in spite of all the negative influences that are out there. Why aren't you doing it? You can do it too. They've done it. Why aren't you doing it? You can live in a world full of negative influences. God will give you the ability to overcome them if you let God's Word steer you in that direction. Just because you're a small remnant doesn't mean you can be defeated by a larger group. God says they overcame. That small group there, they overcame. You need to do it and you're able to do it. In other words, no one can tell God that, that they weren't able to live right. You'll uh, laugh in, you're old enough to remember that show, Laugh In. The, uh, one of the taglines on Laugh in was the devil made me do it. Well, devil can't make you do anything. Devil can tempt you, but he can't make you do anything. So you can't say, well, I I have no blame in this. The devil made me. No, he's going to tempt you. But you have free will to say no. And he's saying to this church, you can't blame the enemy for what they're doing because this group, they're okay. They survived. They're still living for me. Why aren't you living for me? You can't blame anybody else but yourself. They stayed strong. Verse 5 says, He who overcomes will, like them, the remnant, be dressed in white. Again, anyone who's able to overcome and keep on winning victories is going to be righteous. People who, if they're in the church, he's trying to get the church their attention. He says, change like this remnant over there. You can do it. I know you can do it. They've done it. You can do it. If you do it, you're going to have robes of white. And verse 5 says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He said that everyone is able to overcome all of life's battles with God's help. And if he does that, God will count him, righteousness, count, him, count him righteous. Does that mean we're perfect? No. Does that mean we win every battle? No. But it means we go from circumstance to circumstance, not letting those things defeat us. When Paul says, forgetting what's behind, that means all your failures. Everything you blew in the past, God knew about it, and God forgot it. You forgave, he asked for forgiveness, God forgot it, You move on. You can't live there. You can't live always reminding yourself of all the bad things you've done in the past. The enemy likes to do that to you, by the way. There's a a conviction of the Spirit, which means your conscience is telling you what to do. And then there's condemnation. The Bible says in Romans 8, there's therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Uh, If you do something wrong, the Holy Spirit is there to tweak you. and Say, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. And you have the choice to say, okay, you're right. Lord, forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. You've asked your forgiveness. The Bible says he's faithful and just. Forgive your sins and cleanse you. You're clean. Slate's clean. All gone. If you feel convicted after that, that's condemnation. The Bible says God's already forgotten it. And if you're feeling convicted, the enemy is condemning you for what you did that's already been forgiven. So whenever that comes up, you know that's the enemy. Everything you've done in your life up to the point where you ask God to forgive you and then every day when you ask God to forgive you, it's already been forgotten by God. There's no reason for God to bring it back because he, the Bible says He forgets it. He chooses to forget it. So if you're beginning to feel guilty about that, the enemy is trying to condemn you for things you've already been forgiven of. And you're going to say, don't care. God's already forgiven me. I am right with God. doesn't matter what the enemy's trying to tell me. He says, now to who, each person who is able to overcome all these battles, God is going to deliver them. But on the flip side of that, he says, if we don't succumb, if we, fail to, if we fail to get right, what happens? If we allow those things to defeat us, and we allow the world to get in and change our minds and change who we are, what's going to happen? It's going to blot your name out. The Bible says, I will never blot his name out, which tells us that he might blot your name out. If you're righteous, if you overcome these things and you trust Christ, doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't sin, doesn't mean you win every battle, but if you love God, you serve God, the Bible says, I'm never going to take your name out of the book of life. If that's true then the opposite must be true as well. If you don't overcome, if you walk away, if you let the world beat you up and take you away, then yeah, I'm going to take your name out. Why would he say to those who overcome, unless there's a possibility of blotting out those who don't overcome? In ancient cities, the the names of its citizens were recorded in a register until their death then they were erased or marked out of the book of the living. For Christ to say that your name will never be blotted or erased or marked out means even your death will not not mark the end of your relationship with Christ. In other words, you stay faithful to Christ and it doesn't mean we're perfect. Please understand, it doesn't mean we're perfect. We're gonna sin all the time until the day we die. The difference is we ask God for forgiveness. We really repent of that. David committed much more serious sins than Saul. The difference was David asked for forgiveness. Saul didn't. If we persevere and we love Jesus to the day we die, the Bible says even death, it's not going to take your name out because you're going to be in eternity. Like Lloyd. 12 years, I can't believe it. Wow. Seems like yesterday, right? Man. Death is just the end of the book of this life or the end of the chapter, I should say. The next chapter is when you're in eternity with Christ. And the Bible says, you overcome that you live for God to the rest of end of your days, the next chapter of your life is going to be in paradise. How do we overcome these things? Verse John 5, I know I'm keeping you long, I'm sorry. This is, for, this is love for God, to obey His commandments, and His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Simple act of trusting and believing faith allows us to win battles. It's not the promise of the world. Simple faith. The church ultimately trusted in their reputation and their outward appearances, not in their relationship with Christ. Again, they, they lived on what happened years ago. The overcomers may have had some same outward appearance, They may have had material wealth. They may have had blessings in this life. The difference was they trusted Christ. It's not what they had, but how they have viewed their relationship with God. God looks on the heart of the people and was able to determine the attitudes of the overcomers and the attitudes of those who weren't overcomers. I'm going to close real quick, I promise. Uh, Well, if your child messes up in their pursuit of doing something for you your your two-year-old really wants to do something right for you but in the process they spill something and they mess something up do you immediately bash them for doing that or do you know their heart attitude was right in what they were doing it just happened to be a mistake when we sin and we feel bad for it and we repent of it, it's not the sin. God sees the hard attitude of each one of us. Man, we, we do something we think is really sinful and we just, we're just we sorry, we repent of it, Lord, forgive me. God sees the hard attitude. As opposed to somebody who does the same exact thing but doesn't care. It doesn't really bother him that they do that. And they don't ask God for forgiveness. Same sin, different outcome because of the hard attitude of the person asking for forgiveness. It's not our outward appearance that God looks at. He looks at the attitude of our hearts. He ends with verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is John's last time to basically say, wake up, are you awake? Are you prepared for Jesus to come back? His return is imminent, but if we're to see people come to faith, that will require us as a church to wake up. In other words, Wake up to something is to revive them and revive us. You think you can hang on for about three minutes for a song? You had that song? I found this song a couple years ago. It's an older song, but I want you to listen to the lyrics. We have the lyrics for those too, right?
1: You didn't want to miss a thing And your heart was open, ready for change Oh, those days, you were never afraid to sing Never afraid to lift your hands Didn't care what people Was slipping away. Your heart was soft, you had radiant eyes. But slowly the pressures inverted the light pulled you into the dark of the night.
0: your heads for a moment I think we can agree that these are the last days even if it's not the question still remains are we ready are we on fire for God do we have the excitement and the love we had at the beginning? Or are we becoming mechanical in our, in our walk with Christ? We do it because we have to do it. We do it because we've always done it. And we don't have any feeling or emotion behind it. When you first give your life to Christ, it, it changes everything in you and it's easy as time goes by to lose the excitement of what God did in your life and that's the point we have to ask God to revive us to give me back the love that we had the excitement the the transformation that you did in our lives years ago because we want to be ready we want to enjoy you now all the time. And we just want to be ready for whenever it is you return. Whether it's in my lifetime or not, I'm okay. I'm waiting for it. I'm excited for it. If I die today, I'm ready for it. And that's what God wants for each one of us. To be revived. To have the same excitement and zeal that we had at the beginning and we don't become robots. But we become living human beings who love and serve God. If you're here today, you've never done that. You've never really committed your life to Christ, or you've thought about it, you've talked about it, and you don't even know what that is. That just means you admit you're a sinner. We're all sinners. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ In other words, the payment for our sin was already paid by Jesus. And the only thing you have to do to receive that payment is to believe on it. The Bible says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. If you want that assurance and you want that excitement, that zeal, that fire, that's why you're here. You're not here by accident, coincidence. You're here because God ordained you to be here for something. And if that's you, I'm going to pray with you. Would you slip up your hand real high so I can see it and know that I'm praying for you. (coughs) Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the many blessings you pour upon our lives. We thank you that you were long suffering with us. The Bible says, while we hated you, while we hated you, you still died for me. Father, I can't comprehend that, but all I can do is say thank you and and I love you. I pray for each person here that you would revive each one of us. That we would see the soon coming of Jesus and know that our time here is short. Whether it's physical life or rapture life, our time is short. We want to not only be revived but we want to see others revived with us. And we want to see people coming to know You for the first time. Lord, put us in places and positions and circumstances where we are able to talk about You and allow our walk to back up what we talk. And allow people to come to know You through whatever it is we do in our lives. So when we get to heaven, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful to do what I've called you to do. Enter into your reward. Bless each person here, Lord. Allow us to experience the joy and peace that comes from knowing you in a really heartfelt relationship. And I do it all in the name of Jesus. And all the God's people said, Amen. Man, God bless you. Have a great week. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I kept you so long.